And the getting the visa for Pakistan, how was that from Canada? Okay, so it's an e-visa. So it's really easy now compared to before. You can apply online and you can get a multi-entry visa. But they did ask for a bank statement, a proof of employment, uh, and a few other things, a sponsor in the country. So I had to contact a friend that I knew who lived in Pakistan and he had to write a, a letter of invitation for me. So it was, even though it's an e-visa, it's still pretty difficult, especially if you're applying for a multi-entry visa. You'll, you'll need to have a sponsor in the country, bank statement, and things like that. How many months do they give you? They gave me three months, but the cool thing is you can extend it, and I managed to extend it twice. So that's, that's very nice. And how expensive was the extension? The extension is cheap. It's $20 for three, well, like... Mine was three months initially, so when you extend it, it's another 20 bucks, and then you get three months multi-entry. Yeah, if your initial visa is a single entry, one month, then I'll extend that only one month. The initial one was $90 to get my three months visa, and then every further extension was 20 bucks. I know there's some overlap between the cultures of Pakistan and Afghanistan. There's some, but obviously there's many different flavors within each country. What did you see as some of the key differences, like, when you went from one to the other? Well, definitely the one I would say is the westernization. Um, Pakistan is much more westernized, especially in the cities. Like you'll see people wearing jeans, then they, they watch Netflix and, you know, you could feel like you're in New York. Whereas in Afghanistan, especially outside Kabul, that you won't find McDonald's, you know, it's, it's a very, very, different you don't feel like they've been americanized or westernized as much as pakistan whereas you know you see plenty of kfcs in pakistan for instance and you don't see that in afghanistan so in a way afghanistan felt more genuine it felt like its culture had been preserved better whereas i feel like pakistan is very is westernizing very quickly people know more about western shows than me here like when you talk to people they're more up to date with the new netflix series than i am as a westerner it's very uh Interesting. Do you know how people decide to get married to each other? Is it arranged marriages or because when it's such a segregated society, I always find that fascinating. Like how do women and men actually decide? Yeah, to- it's still arranged marriages on both sides. Uh, their their parents choose the, their spouses. So you sometimes you in Pakistan, I met a few people who had uh, love marriages, but they're the minority. Most of them uh, and do you know what is the metric that they use to try to find the ideal spouse? I imagine for men, the, the, the people are looking for rich men and wealthy men, I imagine. And for women, what is the criteria? What are they looking for? So basically, I've got a friend here who recently got married, so I can tell you it's quite interesting. Like you said, for the men, it's job prospect, uh, income prospect, uh, his financial situation. Is he somebody that's responsible and will have a stable life? And then for women, usually guys will ask their mom, you know, pick a girl. So the mom chooses for them, which is very interesting because because it's segregated uh, on a gender basis, guys can't really go out and meet women. So their mom is going to go and find a girl for them. And they might be lucky. Sometimes the mom will show them a picture of the girl on their phone um, and the guy can see what she looks like. But it's, it's usually based on beauty. That's what they've told me. You know? So the guy will say, I like a girl that looks like this and that. Yeah. And then the, the mother will go and try to sh- literally shop for a, a wife. And then after that, the marriage will uh, take place. That's fascinating because that's different than other Muslim countries I've been in Africa where 
beauty is not necessarily the overriding concern. For example, if the parents had invested a lot of money into a woman's education, then the bride price, I assume there's a bride price going on there in Afghanistan and Pakistan, but is that, is that right? I don't think there's a bride price in Pakistan. There might be, but uh, I've, I'm not exactly sure. I know the guy is supposed to obviously pay for the wedding and everything, but uh, I don't think they pay. See, it's, it's confusing because here it's a mix of Islamic culture and uh, subcontinent culture. So sometimes they have traditions that are uh, purely based on Islam and others that overlap from their cultural uh, context with India. But I don't, I don't know if they pay a, uh, a bright price. Do they do that in every African country you've been to? Yeah, yeah. It's pretty much universal. No matter whether they're Muslim or not or Christian or whatever the hell they want to be, they're almost all bright price. There, there's a little bit less so maybe in North Africa, slightly. But in the Sub-Sahara, it's pretty universal. You'll... And it's always from the men to the families, the bride's family. Correct. Yeah, that's that's who gets to keep the money and and whatever gifts. And there's also expected expectation that you're supposed to give a, a, in valise a, a suitcase full of gifts, clothing to your bride. It's in addition, and all this is determined generally by your ability to pay. So if you're a very impoverished person, obviously you're not going to give that much. But if you're super wealthy, you, you're expected to give a lot more. A lot of people will make a big deal saying, oh, it's whatever you want to give. It's what I said, really? So if I can give five bucks, I'm like, no, 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 you can't get that. Okay, so then <laughs> tell me what the real price is. <laughs> oh, it's whatever you can afford. Well, like, well, I don't know. <laughs> it's so vague. It's frustrating that. It's funny you say that about the vagueness that irritates you because uh, that's something I've I've learned to appreciate about our Western culture. Uh, because, you know, you say like you ask them, can you give five bucks? And then obviously they say no. Even here, when you ask people about prices, I mean, in that you're talking about bright prices, but any price here, like if somebody does a service for you, they'll always say, oh, yeah, give whatever you want. But they have an idea. They know what price they want to get from you. But there's not that, you know, Westerners were straightforward, were direct, were able to just say, hey, this is worth 100 bucks, pay me 100 bucks. But here they have that culture where they don't want to offend you and you're, everything is subtle and implied and you're supposed to sort of guess what you should give, but they don't want to tell you straight up. And it's, it's very interesting. Right. And also they have an advantage that since you don't know the price, you might actually accidentally offer 10 times the actual going rate, for example. That's another benefit. Yeah. Or like you might have seen that as well in Africa. Uh, but here, sometimes taxi drivers will tell you, like, oh, no, 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 don't pay for the, the ride. You're a guest and, you know. I'm happy to, you know, it's my pleasure to give you a ride. Don't don't pay for it. But deep down, he wants you to pay, and you sh you have to, you have to know that, and you have to insist. And then the game is that you insist. He pretends he's not interested a few times, until the point where you just force it onto him, and give him the money, and then go away. That definitely will never ever fucking happen in Africa. <laughs> really? No, okay, that's no, no way in hell. <laughs> uh, Maybe in Sudan. Did it never yes, to Sudan. Sudan. Sudan is the only exception. You're right, uh, and maybe yeah, exactly. So, well, Africans, Sudan usually they mean it. To be fair, usually they do mean it. When give they, you an example, Africa, Sub-Saharans, they will never, ever, ever turn you down for money. Practically, I mean, I'm exaggerating because whenever you say never, there's always exceptions. But give you an example, I stayed at many Africans' homes because you know, I picked up three thousand hitchhikers, so they would invite me to their house, and I'd stay there. And at the end of the stay, I would offer them money. Almost always they took the money. Almost always. Now, 
that would be unthinkable, I imagine, in Afghanistan. If I offer, it would be insulting to give them money. But in Sub-Saharan, yeah, I've tried that a few times. If you offer, the, the, sometimes they are genuinely insulted. They won't yeah. uh, because they feel like you're offending their sense of hospitality. Absolutely right. And, but yeah. but in the Sub-Saharan, they will never, ever, ever turn down money. In oh, I, I'm again, I'm, I'm giving an absolute statement, which of course everybody will refute. But in general, it's 99 percent of the time. Africans will accept whatever money you offer them gladly, happily, for whatever reason, you know, they yeah. perform, they go do a service for you. You ask them for a bottle of water, they'll go. If you give them a tip for the bottle of water, yeah, sure, they'll take that too. Um, if you, um, if they offer you a meal and if you say, thank you so much for the meal, here's some money, oftentimes. Now, if it's a very wealthy family in Africa, okay, that's true. That's probably the where they will not accept the money. But mm-hmm. if it's somebody who's just middle of the road or, or poor, uh, there is they'll they'll take whatever money you offer anyway. So all right, so let's wrap things up and tease people for the future episodes. Uh, what are your plans uh, coming up? So I'm waiting for my Indian visa here in Islamabad, and it's taking forever. I don't know if I'll be able to get it because uh, of the polit- political situation between the two countries. They you know they they make it hard for people to get an Indian visa here in Pakistan. So if I do get the visa, then I'll go to India and explore the country. And it'll be interesting for me to see the differences between India and Pakistan. And if they don't give it to me, then I'm thinking of going to Southern Africa for the African winter. Maybe a place like Angola or Zambia. I think Angola has an, has an e-visa. So I might uh, might go and see it. Because it was hard in the past to see Angola. I don't know how it was when you went there. But it used to be difficult to get the visa, I think. Yes, it was very hard, and I was fortunate to finally go to a town near the DRC border and uh, with Angola, and there you could get a five-day transit visa. That was the only way I could pull it off. Wait, so you only got five days to see the country? Yes. Oh, yeah. wow. They would not give me a visa for any other thing. I, I tried for two weeks in Kinshasa in the capital of DRC, and they would not do it. They told me to go get it from my home embassy to give me a real visa. But all this has changed, as you kind of alluded to. Nowadays, apparently, you can get, I think, an e-visa. Certainly, you can get a 30-day visa in Angola relatively easy. But I could not at the time that I went. It was just five-day transit, which was a pain in the ass because I had to climb the tallest mountain of Angola and tra- traverse the entire country, which is a very big country. <laughs> That's crazy. Uh, one thing I will say to since we're wrapping up to bring it back to what we said earlier about Afghanistan, uh, if your listeners are listening and you know they're wondering, oh, isn't it def- dangerous now to go to Afghanistan? The thing is, people were going before when there was a bloody war happening and people were being shot at and it was literally a war zone. And yet people think it's more dangerous to go now, which I find very weird from a logical standpoint. Because regardless of what people think of who's running the country, governments and things like that, everybody could agree that a country is safer when there's no war in the country, you know, but it's, it's just strange. Like people think it's more dangerous to go now than before. And I don't understand where that where that beliefs come, where that belief. Comes. Let me explain what I think most people are thinking when they hear that. The reason that they think is more dangerous now is that they think that the current regime, the Taliban, are unfriendly to. Uh, Westerners, NATO-friendly countries, that kind of stuff. That's where that's coming from. So it's the, yes, there's no war going on, but there's an unfriendly regime 
there. And so they just think that if they don't get killed or kidnapped, and let's say they get kidnapped and then they think, okay, well, the Taliban's not going to fight to save my ass and there's no embassy there. So how the hell am I going to get out of that situation? So that's what they're, I think, thinking. And and obviously you prove them wrong. Yeah, well, actually, that's a great point. And I think, Francis, that's what I was also worried about before going. And it was a big decision. You know, I thought, just, you know, should I go or not? And then I thought, well, you'll either be my last trip or my best trip. You know, <laughs> that's what I thought. <laughs> yeah. And it turned yeah. out to be uh, the best one. I was really, really interesting. Uh, I don't know how uh, illegal I can, how, uh, if we're allowed to say illegal things on the podcast, but, you know, they have a lot of like drug factories in Afghanistan, especially in the Helmand province. And, you know, it's, it's crazy. You can see the opium being processed and turned into heroin and, that's something you'll only see in Afghanistan unless you have contacts in the West who can show you their drug factories, you know, but in Afghanistan, it's a cultural thing and people will gladly, you know, show you how the opium is being processed and they're doing all kinds of drugs and you can sort of see it and take pictures and it's fascinating. It's really a unique country. That sounds great. We're going to sign up for the the drug heroin uh, opium tours out of Afghanistan. <laughs> Exactly. But I, I think it's better to go for the suicide bomber tour, but that's in me. Okay, thanks. And last thing, uh, if you'd like anybody to follow you or connect with you on social media, do you have any things that where you would send people? Yeah, at the moment, the best way to get in touch is on Facebook. So my name is Xavier PG, uh, X-A-V-I-E-R space PG. Okay, and I'll put a link uh, right in the show notes. Thank you again. And we will definitely 100% talk again because I think it's fascinating. And also you talked about bombarding me with a few questions, so we might have a special podcast about that. Thank you again, Zafia. And that ends this episode of the WanderLearn podcast, where we explore travel, technology, and transformation. If you'd like to see the show notes with links to what we've talked about, go to wanderlearn.com and click on this episode. If you'd like to connect with me, just remember F Tapon. That's my first initial and my last name. F Tapon is always my social media username. My website is ftapon.com. Do you want to leave me an anonymous voicemail where you can make a comment or ask a question? Then go to speakpipe.com slash ftapon. Furthermore, if you'd like to get rewarded for supporting my projects, then go to patreon.com slash ftapon. That's where you can pick up some remarkable rewards for as little as $2 a month. Now, five quick favors. Number one, subscribe to the WanderLearn podcast. Two, download it. Three, share it four, review it, and five, sign up for my newsletter at wanderlearn.com. Our theme music was composed by Eric Stratman. This is Francis Tapon encouraging you to wander and learn. Mm-hmm.